Welcome to the Life and Legacy Show, where we discuss all things elder law, estate, and legacy planning. Hosted by certified elder law attorney, Tim Seckler, from the Seckler Law Firm. And now your host, attorney Tim Seckler. And welcome to this week's edition of the Life and Legacy Show. My name is Tim Seckler from the Seckler Law Firm in Cranberry, serving all of Western Pennsylvania, helping great families make great estate plans. Uh, and this show, if you're new to the show, we talk about all types of things, estate planning and elder law. And at my law firm, uh, what we do, we really see a couple of different types of cases. We help people with post-death administration work. Uh, we write lots of wills and trusts and powers of attorney. And we do nursing home crisis work, which is when somebody needs long-term care and they're trying to figure out how to pay for it. We like to say we help people find, get, and pay for long-term care. Uh, because this healthcare system that we have for seniors is extremely complicated, and it's hard to know which way to go sometimes. And so what we're doing with this show in, at our law firm, being education-based, we try to get people the information they need to know on uh, out how to plan for successful senior years in retirement. And to that end, today I am joined by a guest, uh, a guest the talented Janice Finn of Inhabit Home Health and Hospice. And we are uh, here talking about um, end-of-life decision-making, and we're talking about hospice, and we're talking about how uh, to sort of age uh, gracefully and, and um, make the final chapter of your life uh, a happy one. And today, April 16th, is, uh, is a little-known national holiday. Well, not a national holiday. I think that's actually a, a, a legal term. We, we have uh, a day <laughs> that you should know about. And it is called National Healthcare Decision Day. And so, Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate being here. All right. And so, tell us all about what is National Healthcare and Decision Day. Well, National Healthcare Decisions Day is always on April 16th. Um, it's a day that exists to remind all people, regardless of age or current health, of the importance of making their wishes regarding healthcare known. Uh, ben Franklin uh, once said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except for death and taxes, which is why it exists on April the 16th. The day after taxes. So yeah. if, if running through the your uh, your 1040 in the last couple of weeks wasn't enough for you, then we, we want to remind you that, that there will be a day when you don't have to do that anymore. And, uh, and so uh, National Healthcare Decision Day is a day to get you thinking about how uh, – how you would like to receive your care because let's face it we are all going to need long-term care at, or, or some form of care in our lives uh, and so uh, Janice lives in this world and talks to people about uh, senior health care decision making all day long uh, and uh, and so why don't we start by talking a little bit about hospice you know hospice is is this word that gets tossed around and I think people sort of make some stuff up about what it means and what it is so why don't we just define what hospice is and, and talk a little bit about who may need these services. Thanks, Tim. Uh, hospice was established back in 1983 as a model of quality care to provide Medicare beneficiaries with a high level of end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. um, hospice provides um, uh, typically in-home care but can also be provided in skilled facilities and hospitals and other, other venues. Um, it's patient-centered and, of course, interdisciplinary. Um, it provides medical, emotional, and spiritual support. Uh, the hospice team is an aggressive team to promote dignity while dying. 
um, family also receives abundant support. That's something that people don't often realize. They sometimes the family. The family, yes. Yeah. Um, sometimes people think, well, what's the difference between hospice care and comfort care? Mm-hmm. We've heard of comfort care for a long time. Uh, it's very different. It's a much higher level of care. It provides uh, a physician support, nursing aids, um, uh, spiritual care, a social worker, volunteers, um, all provide so, total care. So when you go in a hospice, you, you get like this entire package, like this all-star team of people here who are helping not only the senior person that, that needs care, but also the family and how they're dealing with this. Because, you know, it's been my experience. Like, we deal with folks that are going through long-term care battles all the time, and it seems to me that um, there, there's usually a couple of dynamics here. Like, when somebody needs this aggressive care, one thing that's occurring is the family members are essentially saying, we can't handle this situation anymore, right? We need help. And, you know, it seems to me that, especially with spouses, there's an awful lot of guilt around that, like asking for help, needing help, um, and, and admitting that, you know, I, I can't do this all on my own anymore seems to seems to come with it some interesting family dynamics. You know, sometimes we get the situation where, like, there's the local daughter who's the caretaking daughter who lives next door checking the fridge every week. And then there's the out-of-town kids who are sort of pointing the finger and saying, well, well, why are we doing this? Why do we need this? And so, well, you haven't been to visit in nine months, and, and you don't really understand what's going on around here. And so, the, you know, these family dynamics. So I think it's interesting that there's a social worker involved, and, and, and I can imagine that they are pretty busy people. Very, yes. So, um, now, one of the things I've always, like, I've heard in, in being in this business is, is one of the complaints, I think, is that people um, wait too long to sign up for hospice services. Like, there's this kind of thing that people seem to know, whether it's true or not, that it's like, oh, if we sign up for hospice, you know, you'll, you'll hear people say, you know, how's your grandpa doing? Oh, he just signed up for hospice. He's, like, in his last days. And it's like, well... That's not really what hospice is, you know, and, and yes, people on hospice eventually do pass away, but but we don't want to wait until, hospice is not the last four days of somebody's life. Hospice is designed to be a an entire care package that can provide a lot of help for months and months and months before somebody passes away. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why, why do you think, or, or what are some reasons that people should sign up for hospice earlier than they do? That's a great question. So we do have issues in the United States with um, starting hospice much too late. And part of that is just education, education of our physicians, education of our communities. Um, Hospice is something that really should start at least six months, if not longer, with an advanced illness or or end of life. the opportunity for the hospice team to come in and develop a relationship and trust with the with the patient and with the family is integral to the success of hospice. You know, I was I was um, standing at a local hospital not long ago, and I had my name tag on, and a woman came up to me and said, "Oh, hi, you you work for hospice?" And I of course acknowledged that, and she said, "Well." I just want to share with you that my mother recently passed away on hospice, and um, the only regret I have is that we didn't start it early enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I reflected feeling there, and we had a really nice conversation. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's lots of reasons for that. And, again, it, it's, it's, it's a myth that uh, one, of the, one of the several myths of hospice is that it means you're going to die next week, or it means that, that hospice is going to come in and, and withdraw care or stop medications. And the truth of the matter is it's completely the opposite of that. Uh, we don't stop medications. We don't, you know, the idea is that we're going to continue medications that are beneficial and not causing you harm. 
we're going to we're going to continue with um, we're going to accelerate care, meaning give more care than you had. There was a study done several years ago. Um, might surprise many of the listeners here, but people receiving hospice care live 28 days longer in a better state, in a better situation than people who do not receive hospice care. I wow. think that's really important. That's interesting. And they probably felt better along the way, right? Yes, yes. Now, the, another thing that I think people think is like, so, so sometimes we're in the context of, of uh, like talking to family members about placing somebody on, on a hospice, and maybe that person has dementia, or maybe that person doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, and, you know, there, so there's that dynamic, but there's also the dynamic of there's an awful lot of sick people out there that do know what's going on. And perhaps, like, going on hospice might feel like uh, admitting defeat or, or something like that. When, when the reality of the thing is it may not be that, and it may also just be that, well, listen, the, the situation you're dealing with, yes, it is terminal, but it, it's also an extremely unpleasant and an uncomfortable thing. And having additional support can make the days that you have better um, and so you know I I, 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 um, I think that that there's a lot of reasons why people don't um, don't do this earlier and I, I have personally been on the on the board before of an inpatient inpatient hospice facility and the you know the, the thing is always that at least when I was there we're only getting people at the very end like people are coming to our facility to pass away when this facility was built to care for people for a lot longer and provide supports and provide additional help. But, you know, one of the things that I think people think about when they think about hospice is i got to go to the place, right? Um, but is, is most of hospice care provided in inpatient facilities? Uh, no. Actually, most of hospice is provided in the home. Um, m- the majority of people want to pass away at home surrounded by family and a familiar environment. Uh, unfortunately, as a, as a side note, um, Few, few people do because they don't have those conversations with family. Right. Um, but hospice is generally provided in the home environment. Uh, again, the team of support comes to the home, supports the patient, supports the family. Right. And so on that team, you get, you've get got nursing, you've got nurses' aides, you've got the social worker, there's a doctor supervising, I presume, most of this. And is it, um, like, when people need this care, does it cost them a bunch of money? No, hospice is a Medicare benefit, and in fact, many private insurances also uh, support it. But it is a Medicare benefit. It's essentially free. Uh, It's a free service. The other thing I want to mention is that the service is available 24-7. So when we think of somebody being ill, not feeling well, um, typically they don't want to go back to the hospital. They don't want to be... Um, They don't want to be put through a bunch of uncomfortable tests and uncomfortable procedures, which is why they've chosen the hospice benefit. They want to be cared for at home, and that care is provided at home. So if it's 9 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning and you're feeling ill or there's been a change, family picks up the phone and calls their hospice team, and the issue is addressed uh, very quickly. Right. So there you go, folks. I mean, if you're listening to the show and you're caring for um, someone who is in an advanced health care situation uh, and needs some additional help, I mean, now's the time to, to think about maybe enlisting these services. Um, there's there's no shame in this, and it, and it can provide an awful lot of care and help to you and the person you're caring for. Uh, and to find out more about Inhabit Home Health in Hospice, which is where Janice is from and, and works, uh, you should give them a call at 724 724- Five one zero seven zero zero zero. Again, that phone number is seven two four five one zero 
7000. And uh, you guys serve pretty much anybody uh, that could be listening to this radio show. I, I think you told me before the show it's 10 counties around western Pennsylvania where you guys are? Correct. Right. And so if you need some help, reach out to Janice. And I, I can tell you from personal experience, Janice will talk to just about anybody, even if they're not the right fit. Like if you need help and you're confused about the long term care uh, services that may be available or end-of-life health care services that may be available for you or for your loved one, reach out, uh, and, and Janice will coach you through this. So 724-510-7000. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to the Life and Legacy Show. My name is Tim Seckler. I am your host, and I am the proprietor up here at the Seckler Law Firm, where we do uh, estate planning. We write wills, trust, powers of attorney, uh, and advanced directives, which is end-of-life health care decision-making. And we're going to talk about that here shortly. Uh, and some things you should consider there. If you'd like more information about the law firm, you can give us a call at 724-546-4227. Again, the law firm's phone number, 724-546-4227. Or check out all the resources we have available for you at our website, which is secklerlawfirm.com, S-E-C-H-L-E-R, lawfirm.com. And when you're at uh, the website, you're going to find information um, uh, about things like this, uh, hospice and, and different things. You'll also find an opportunity to schedule for a free workshop. So if you go to the workshops tab, we have workshops in our office just about every week uh, where folks can come in and learn all about wills and trusts and powers of attorney and, and advanced directives. We talk about things like the most common questions that we get are, should I use a will or should I use a trust? Uh, what's the difference between a revocable trust and an irrevocable trust? What are the tax circumstances surrounding all of these things? And so uh, if you're looking to finally get your affairs in order, a great place to start is with education, and that's why we offer our free workshop for you. Uh, you can find out all about that at secklerlawfirm.com, S-E-C-H-L-E-R, lawfirm.com. And one of the things that I actually sometimes talk about in the workshop when we're talking about uh, end-of-life decision-making is this case that most listeners uh, will be familiar with, which was the Terry Schiavo case, which was early 2000s, I think. Uh, and um, Terry was, uh, was a person that had, um, well, essentially she was in a vegetative state for a long time. And, and why don't you give, I think, I think you probably know more about this, Janice, than I do. Why don't you give a little bit of the background on this whole Terry Schiavo thing? And then I'd like to chat about it a little bit about what could have been done better. Thanks, Tim. I'm sure most of the listeners may remember um, this. This went on for about 15 years, from 1990 to 2005. Uh, it's a very sad story uh, of a young woman who, for different reasons, ended up in a persistent vegetative state, and she did not have advanced directives um, through whatever uh, her, her husband was appointed as her health care representative, and so therefore he would be making decisions for her. And he felt that she would not want to be kept alive with feeding tubes and these sorts of things. Um, the family, she had other family, she had parents who stepped in and said, no, she would want to be kept alive with these feeding tubes. And so this ended up being obvi an obvious conflict, um, very difficult situation that eventually became very public, ended up in the court systems. It was on television. It was on the news channels. And um, Yeah, I remember. I remember the president weighed in, the pope weighed in. And, you know, it was like the husband wanted, the, it was the husband that wanted uh, to essentially terminate care right and then it was the extended family her parents or siblings whomever that that was treat 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 and there were accusations flying back and forth underneath the headlines that all he wanted was a life insurance money and all of this but but putting all of that aside you know i think the the biggest problem is the husband wanted this the family wanted that but nobody really knew for a long time what terry wanted 
right? Uh, and she never took, as I understand it, the opportunity to, to communicate this in a document or anything else. And so, um, you know, how, you, how, did, how did that finally resolve? Interestingly, um, after many, many years and back and forth in the courts and all over social media and everywhere, uh, a distant relative came along and said that they recalled a conversation with Terry much earlier, obviously, where they were going to visit somebody or talking about somebody very ill in a hospital where she said, if that ever happened to me, I would never want that care. Mm -hmm. Um, So that information uh, was brought forward and um, the decisions were made to withdraw that feeding tube and... She passed away comfortably after some time. Based on a conversation she had with a friend while going on a, on a, a visit to someone else. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a shame. You know, who knows? We still don't know exactly what Terry would have done in that situation. But here's the thing, and, and here's what, what really um, I would like to encourage everybody listening to this to think about is we are – remember the, the de- death and taxes conversation, right? The, these are the two things you can't avoid. We are all going to get sick at one point in time. And somebody will eventually likely have to make some some end-of-life decisions about us. And the thing is, nobody likes to talk about this. Nobody likes to think about this. But it's a very important conversation to have. And and there are some tools that you should consider using um, to to describe um, your your thoughts on this. And, And when doing an estate plan... When we, if I write you a will or a trust or whatever you decide to do, we also do a document that's called an advanced medical directive. And an advanced directive is a two-part document. The first part is you appoint a health care agent. Um, that's the person who's going to communicate your desires or you're going to make decisions for you. And then the second part of an advanced directive is a living will. And it is in the event I had an end-stage medical condition or I am in an irreversible vegetative state, here's how I would want. I would want this. I would not want this. Uh, and regardless of what you want, the point is you should communicate these desires because if you don't communicate this, then there's two things. You know, if we think about those two parts, we're pointing who's going to make the decisions, and then we're telling them what to do. Um, well, if you don't do that, then the government rule book does it for you. And so we've got these rules that appoint the, the spouse or the kids or, or whomever it is, and there's a specific order. But, you know, sometimes the spouse is not the right person to make a decision. Sometimes the spouse themselves is having a health care decision. Sometimes the spouse has dementia. Sometimes the spouses are separated from each other. They're still legally married, but they haven't talked to each other in five years. Or <clears throat> if we need to turn to kids, which kid? The, the local kid who um, has a drinking problem and, and barely shows up at family functions or the, the extended kid who lives out in Arizona but happens to be a nurse, right? Who's the proper kid to make this decision? And it ends up sometimes kids fight over this. And, and to avoid and, – and it makes this entire process of being sick and passing away in this entire stressful situation that much more stressful because now the kids are fighting over it and – it, it's just my opinion that we should avoid any and all of that. And, and you plan ahead by doing this document that, that indicates, and, and, I, um, and I feel real strongly that you should have one of these, but it's not the only thing you should do to communicate your end-of-life desires. Um, you also need to communicate. So can you, Janice, can you talk to people a little bit about um, communicating to your family, communicating to your friends, your kids about end-of-life Yeah, Tim, thanks. These documents are are extremely important, but as Tim mentioned, they're not the only thing that should happen. There should be a conversation, um, a conversation with family members so they understand that you mean it or that you weren't filling out these documents without thinking or thoughtfulness. So 
one of the best times to have a conversation with family, of course, is after the Thanksgiving dinner or after the Easter dinner. Maybe at your house. That's nap time in my house. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe Black Friday. Maybe we, maybe we should, you know, maybe they should have National Health Care Day be on Black Friday. The, fa- the family's all together and, you know, we're all sitting around on the couch, at least in our house. And so maybe that's a good time. But, yeah, you talk about it when you're together, you know. But when you start the conversation, you know, you never want to start by saying, these are my advanced directives, right? Because somebody thinks you might be dying, and that will, that will disengage them at the moment. They won't be able to focus. Start the conversation with, hey, I'm not sick, but I went to see Tim Seckler the other day, and I filled out my advanced directives, or I'm going to see him, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. But here are the things that are important to me. You know, yeah. if I become so ill that I can't make decisions for myself, I've decided that um, Judy is going to be my decision maker. We've talked about that, you know, and here's why. And I think I think you said some magic words there. I am not sick, but right. Preface this kind of don't scare the heck out of your family, and, and they're going to start telling them stuff stories about why are we talking about this and they're not even going to listen to you i'm not sick but if i become sick or if this thing i'm dealing with gets worse later i want you to know that here is sort of my wishes and my desires and here's where you're going to find this document um that i'm going to be prepare at the law firm or whatever and here's what this means to me right right and and having having those conversations and talking about things like you know if i if I can't make decisions or if I'm in a what we use as a professional term persistent vegetative state or mm-hmm. permanently unconscious I, I don't want a ventilator or i don't want I don't want CPR um, helping them to understand that those were thoughtful decisions is really important because that's very different than if I acquire pneumonia and the doctors say, I think she needs to be put on a ventilator for a few days, that's a very different, very it doesn't different. mean if I get pneumonia, I don't want to be put on a ventilator. Right. Okay. It doesn't mean that at all. It means if I have end stage cancer or if I've had a traumatic brain injury and there's very minimal, if any chance of any reasonable recovery, I don't want to live on a ventilator. I don't want to live with a feeding tube. Right. It's okay to talk about those things. I hope they never happen to any of us, right. but the fact is they will. The, uh, one of the mis- common misconceptions in a legal document, when doing an advanced directive, which has a living will component to it, people confuse that with what is commonly referred to as a do not resuscitate order, or like in Pennsylvania, we have a, a thing called a pulsed form, which is a physician's order. But those documents are very different than doing an advanced directive. Those documents are written by a doctor in consultation with the client for somebody who really is at the end of life. But if you're doing um, an advanced directive, if you need, look, if you need shoulder surgery next week, they're still going to give you the medication, the IVs. This is about end of life. Like the precursor to the entire thing is if I have an end stage medical condition uh, or I'm in an irreversible vegetative state, then all of the following apply. If I'm not in an end-stage medical condition or if I'm not in an irreversible vegetative state, then the rest of the document doesn't apply, right? And one of the things that, just from personal experience, at the end of at least the document that we use, at the end of the document, there's, there's the most important question, and it is, my healthcare agent shall follow these terms or my healthcare agent may follow these directions but could override. And just a, just a personal story, I used to advise people that you should use shall. And, and, I, and the, the, my logic for that was, look, you're taking these very difficult decisions and you're putting them on your own shoulders and you're not putting them on the kid's shoulders. But then my dad ends up in a hospital with COVID, okay? And we had an advanced medical directive that said, I don't want a ventilator. And the document said, my agent shall follow these instructions, okay? Now, 
I'm a lawyer. I do this stuff for a living. So I'm on the phone with a hospital social worker saying, we do not consider this to be an end-stage medical condition. Therefore, the ventilator instruction does not apply. But I was extremely concerned that this document could be misconstrued and that they were going to say, no, your dad said no vent. Uh, and, you know, my dad got better. He, he recovered. And since that time, I have been advising people at the end of the document, may. My agent may follow these instructions but can override because it could be that the family wants a second opinion. It could be that the family disagrees with the doctor. It could be that we're, we're now dealing with something that dad wasn't contemplating when he filled out this form, and we're going to make the decision based on, you know, having sort of boots on the ground, so to speak. So that's just a personal takeaway. Um, I think everybody should have this conversation. I think everybody should have these documents. But you really want to be mindful and, and, and put some real thought into what you, what you indicate in this document. All right. We have about two minutes left, Janice. Any, any concluding thoughts on National Health Care Decision Day or, or things that you would like people to know about hospice decision-making? Well, just a couple of things, Tim. I think that when we do fill out these advanced directives, I think it's important to revisit them every so often, and you may have a little more insight to that. But the values that I have when I'm 40 years old may be different than when I'm 60 or 70 or 80. So, uh, And the people I choose to be my decision makers can change over time. So revisiting these are important. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how often you suggest. Um, well, we look at estate planning documents in general every three to five years, and I think it's good to revisit because people are going to forget what they put down. And, and you know, you look at the language through a new lens every couple of years, you know, and, and I think that that's an important point. Okay. And the, and the last thing I want to say is that don't be afraid to talk about hospice, whether it's with your family or with a hospice professional, just to learn and educate yourselves. Um, give me a call. I think Tim shared the phone number, but give me a call. Um, I am happy to come and talk to anybody on the phone or in person, and I will travel anywhere to talk to you and let you un help you to understand what your hospice benefits are, whether it's for now or, you know, in the future. Well, um, just don't be afraid of it. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for joining us on the show. Again, Janice, phone number at, at Inhabit is 724-510-7000. And if you'd like to know more about the law firm, you can visit us at secklerlawfirm.com, S-E-C-H-L-E-R, lawfirm.com. Thanks for listening. Janice, thanks for joining us. This has been the Life and Legacy Show, sponsored by the Seckler Law Firm, where great families make great plans. SecklerLawFirm.com or call 724-841-1393.